The physics paper that I'm most excited about this week is about an experiment that'll measure nothing, but not any nothing, a very specific nothing. That's the vacuum of quantum electrodynamics. You might think that if you remove all the particles from within a container, then the only thing that's left inside is space. But that isn't so. It's because particles in quantum physics are like waves atop an ocean. If you take away the waves, you still have all that water. And the water underneath the waves is like the quantum vacuum. It contains what we call virtual particles, or sometimes they're called quantum fluctuations. They can't be measured in detectors because they're not real particles. However, they affect real particles, and that's measurable. In this new experiment, they want to measure the effect of those virtual particles on a very elementary process that you're all familiar with. It's that light doesn't affect other light. If you cross two light beams, they'll just go through each other. This is why light is good for seeing the world around us, because it points back to the source in a straight line. However, that light doesn't affect other light is, strictly speaking, not correct. And that's because of these virtual particles in the quantum vacuum. You you see, beams of light are made of quanta of light that are the photons. And every once in a while, a photon creates a few of those virtual particles in the quantum vacuum, and those then affect other photons. So this is how light can sometimes affect other light. The issue is that this happens very, very rarely. So you can't just take laser pointers and cross their beams. You need very powerful lasers. These researchers want to do it with the European Exfel laser. That's an X-ray laser of super high intensity. It works by accelerating electrons with magnets in a tunnel that's more than three kilometers long. The electrons are slightly forced off a straight line, which makes them emit X-rays. In the new paper now, they suggest to cross the pulses from this X-ray laser, not with one, but two beams from optical lasers. This triple laser crossing is supposed to coax the virtual particles in the vacuum into interacting with the real particles in the beams. They calculate which angles would be ideal and say that this experiment might become feasible within the next couple of years with the Exfer laser that's located in Hamburg, Germany. I find this an interesting proposal because the quantum vacuum is kind of like the essence of our problems with quantum mechanics. It's always there, whether you observe it or not. So maybe it's the origin of the random jumps in quantum mechanics. Well, maybe not. But still, I fully support this attempt to measure nothing. NASA succeeded in a first test of its new deep space communication technology, which you might one day use to check in on your son who recently moved to Mars. The test was conducted between a device aboard the recently launched Psyche mission and the Palomar Observatory in San Diego County, California. The Psyche spacecraft is on a journey to the asteroid belt between the orbits of Mars and Jupiter. Currently, it's about 10 million miles away from Earth. That's a bit more than 40 times the distance between our planet and the Moon. The system that NASA uses works not with two, but three different stations. One is a beacon from the Jet Propulsion Laboratory in California that goes out to the spacecraft. This sends commands and location information. The communication itself is then sent back from the spacecraft with a laser in the near infrared to the Palomar Observatory. 
The brief connection between the Psyche spacecraft and the observatory worked as desired. They successfully transmitted, received and decoded some test data. With this system, NASA is aiming at a bandwidth of 1.2 megabits per second, which is more than you get 10 kilometers down the road from us. Not a joke. And they'll probably have fiber optics cables on Mars before we get them here. Imagine an atomic nucleus. What does it look like? Is it round like a ball? Yeah, that's what I used to think they look like. But this group of researchers from China has found one that has the shape of a dumbbell. Atomic nuclei are made up of protons and neutrons and they carry the big bulk of the mass of atoms. The number of protons determines the atomic number and without the type of chemical element. Atomic nuclei are known to be able to vibrate and to slightly deform and some are more perfectly round than others. But this dumbbell nucleus is extraordinary indeed. In the new study they looked at a type of beryllium atom. That's a fairly small atom with atomic number 4. The most common type of beryllium is beryllium 9. For the new study, they looked at beryllium 10, which has one additional neutron in the nucleus. Beryllium 10 is slightly radioactive. It decays into boron with a half-life of about one and a half million years. To image the beryllium 10 atoms, the researchers used the radioactive isotope beam factory from the Riken Center in Japan. With that, they accelerated a beam of beryllium-10 to half the speed of light and shot it into a 2mm thick target of solid hydrogen. Then they measured into which directions the decay products flew away and from this they reconstructed the shape of the beryllium-10 nucleus. They found that the structure of the beryllium-10 nucleus resembles that of two helium-4 atoms which make up a dumbbell-shaped core. And then there are two neutrons orbiting around the axis between them. While structures like this are common at the atomic level, where different atoms combine to form molecules, they haven't been confirmed before on the level of nuclei. I know this sounds like a rather obscure, super specialized experimental finding, but I find this incredibly interesting because it means that nuclear structure is much more complex than we thought. Imagine we could synthesize different atomic nuclei the way we can synthesize molecules. This could give rise to a completely new type of chemistry and materials that we presently can't even dream of. Who knows, maybe one day someone will even produce comfortable bras. The Swedish Karolinska Institutet near Stockholm has tested drones for delivering defibrillators in response to emergency calls. And the results of their trial are very promising. In a recent paper, they released the results of their test program. It ran in collaboration with the company Everdrone from April 2021 through May 2022 and covered an area near Stockholm where roughly 200,000 people live. If someone in that area calls 112, that's the European emergency call, and reports a suspected cardiac arrest, they send a drone with a defibrillator on the way. For their trial, they've been deploying five hexacopters of the model DJ-1 Matrix 600 Pro. These can fly up to 12 kilometers in distance at up to 60 kilometers per hour and they are strong enough to carry the defibrillators which weigh about 800 grams. These defibrillators can be used even by amateurs to deliver an electric shock to the heart. This can restore normal heart rhythm and save lives if the cardiac arrest was caused by certain types of arrhythmias. During the trial they sent out a total of 55 drones to suspected cardiac 
cardiac arrest cases. In 37 of those cases, that's about two-thirds, the drones arrived before the ambulance, on average three minutes and 14 seconds earlier. That doesn't sound like a lot, but for a cardiac arrest, three minutes can be the difference between life and death. Out of all those suspected heart attack cases, 18 were actual cardiac arrests, and in six of those cases, the drone-delivered defibrillator came to be used by bystanders. And that's great, but I'd really like to be able to pre-order them so that I can have one waiting next time I look at my stocks. A study just out from researchers at Durham University in the UK has found that reducing social media use doesn't have much of an effect on people's emotional life one way or another. The question whether social media impacts mental health has been hotly discussed among psychologists and sociologists in recent years. One hypothesis has it that going off social media reduces stress and improves well-being. The other hypothesis is that social media is in some sense addictive and discontinuing it causes stress, at least temporarily. There have been many prior studies on the topic, but the results have been inconsistent and therefore in bulk inconclusive. One study found, for example, that people who limited Facebook use to 20 minutes a day reported improved well-being and fewer depressive symptoms. Other studies found no effect at all. Those are just two examples of dozens of studies whose results don't fit together. On the one hand, that's good, because whatever I feel like doing, I'll find a study that supports my decision. On the other hand, I'd like to be smart about what I'm doing. So I want to know what social media does to my brain. Wouldn't you want to know too? OK, maybe people watching this video are a somewhat biased sample. Well, in any case, for the new study, they followed a group of 51 students at Durham University in the UK. Could have been 52, but one person was excluded because they didn't have an iPhone. That was mean, guys, really mean. Okay, so we have 51 iPhone-using students in the UK who significantly decreased their social media intake for six days and were tested for a bunch of things before, during and after intervention. The results were totally unremarkable. They did see an oh-so-slight decrease in negative emotions and boredom, but that was pretty much it. The researchers say that their findings indicate that stopping social media use might remove influences that cause negative emotions, like constant social comparison and fear of missing out, but can also remove things that cause positive emotions, such as social connectivity, which explains why it's such a mixed bag. Another massive study that appeared this month looked at health data from almost two and a half million people all over the world and found no correlation between internet use and mental health. Indeed, mental health by and large has been stable for decades, while internet use has gone from no one to almost everyone. Why can't the psychologists agree on what social media does to us? Well, the issue is that there are lots of variables in this question. For example, it depends on what social media you use. As we all know, some of it is worse than others, and renaming it from Twitter to X didn't help. And a group of students at a British university probably has a different social media experience than, say, a group of farmers in southern Tennessee. Yet another study on social media which appeared this week found that LinkedIn triggers imposter syndrome. That makes sense to me because I'm really just pretending to use it. You've all heard of bubbles, but have you heard of anti-bubbles? 
Me neither, but it's a thing, as I just learned from this recent paper. Bubbles are thin, closed membranes of liquid surrounded by gas, both inside and out. An anti-bubble is just the opposite, a thin, closed layer of gas with liquid inside and out. They're known to sometimes exist in liquids, but they usually last just a few milliseconds, so unless you have very sharp eyes, you've probably never seen one. But researchers from the University de Liège in Belgium have now found a way to reliably create those bubbles and to study them. They did it in a very clever way, by dropping liquid ether into hot oil. The hot liquid makes the drops evaporate on their surface, which creates a layer of vapor. So there's the anti-bubble. They took videos of the antibubbles at very high frame rates and found a few interesting things. First, they had to let the drops fall down from some height, because otherwise they just sit on the oil surface and evaporate. Then they observed how the antibubbles plunged into the oil and came back up. They found that the bubbles were more stable if the oil was hotter, because the heat caused an extra expansion that helped the bubble maintain its structure. They also found that Pre-warming the droplets to room temperature prior to dropping them into the oil increased their lifetime, because otherwise they expanded too quickly. Their creation of antibubbles is based on a version of the Leiden frost effect, which you can see if you drop water onto a hot pan. The droplets then seem to slide around in the pan almost without friction. This is because the heat from the pan vaporizes the liquid water, essentially allowing it to levitate above the surface. The antibubbles come about similarly, just inside of oil rather than on a surface. Now I really want an antibubble cannon. According to a new study from researchers at Cornell, Bitcoin mining could be used to power our transition to green energy. No, they're not joking. At least, I don't think so. Just Bitcoin mining has a bad reputation for eating up a lot of energy, but it has one big advantage over some renewable energy projects. It's that it makes money. You see, as we just talked about in a previous episode, while wind and solar is being expanded quickly, grid expansion is lagging. There's now a total of 3000 gigawatts in renewable power capacity sitting around, unconnected to the power grid. And what use are your wind turbines if you can't bring the power to the people? Well, according to the authors of the new paper, these sources of renewable energy could be hooked up to Bitcoin farms and that'd make them profitable faster. The authors identified multiple projects across the United States, which they say could make millions of dollars immediately if they powered Bitcoin farms rather than just waiting for a grid connection. This includes 32 planned renewable installations in Texas, which could produce profits of $47 million before they start operating commercially. The biggest problem with wind and solar also turns out to be a problem here. Renewable energy generation from these sources fluctuate with wind strength and sun exposure and can make Bitcoin mining inefficient. There's also the issue that Bitcoin mining operations also have upfront costs and other environmental impacts, such as mining the metals that are needed for the computer equipment. And then there's the issue that if the Bitcoin mining actually turns out to be profitable, why do you ever want to connect the power plant to the grid? Welcome to the future.
You've probably heard that particle physicists would really, really like to have a new particle collider, one that can reach even higher energies than the Large Hadron Collider, the currently most powerful particle accelerator in the world. And this new breakthrough, which I just read about the other day, might make their dream come true. The biggest problem with particle colliders is that they're big, because that makes them very, very expensive. They're big because accelerating particles to high energies requires a lot of strong magnets in sequence. This is why the Large Hadron Collider is a ring with a circumference of a whopping 27 kilometers. The next bigger collider that CERN wants to build would be 100 kilometers long. In the new paper now, they were testing a completely different way to accelerate particles. It's called wake surfing. The idea is similar to surfing in the wake of a boat. To make particles wake surf, you create a plasma from some gas and shoot a laser through it. The laser creates a distortion in the plasma that moves with almost the speed of light. You can then inject particles into this rapidly moving plasma distortion. The strong electric and magnetic fields in the wake of the laser shot accelerate the particles. This idea has been around for some time, but the authors of the recent paper added a new trick which is incredibly cool. First, they created the wake with the Texas Petawatt laser, but then they injected nanoparticles into the wake of the laser shot. These nanoparticles release electrons into the wake, which significantly increases the electric field, and with that, the acceleration. In two of the 23 shots, the electrons reach energies of about 10 giga electron volt. Without using nanoparticles, it was just about two. It actually worked better than they expected. In the paper they write, we do not have a satisfactory model or experimental explanation for the generation of such high electron energies. Yes, the Large Hadron Collider makes it to almost 7 tera electron volts per beam, that's a factor 1000 more, but they did it in just 10 centimeters. I'm known to be very critical of particle physics, but really I feel I'm somewhat misunderstood. All I'm saying is that bigger isn't always better. How much do you remember of this week's science news? You can take our quiz on quizwithit.com to find out. Better still, you can collect points from all our videos. We're also working on creator accounts that'll let you create your own quizzes, so go and check it out. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week.